And I find this place very inspiring as an artist and just the terrain, just the landscape of, of where we live fuels a lot of creativity and lyrics and music. But I will say it's a very difficult place to conduct a career from. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Mark Pickerel is on the show. Mark is a singer, songwriter, drummer, and guitarist from Ellensburg, Washington, a small town about 30 miles north of my hometown of Yakima. Mark was a founding member of Ellensburg's own Screaming Trees, along with Gary Lee Connor, Van Connor, and Mark Lanigan. Between 1986 and 1991, with Pickerel on drums, the Screaming Trees recorded five albums, quickly becoming part of the fabric of the Pacific Northwest grunge movement. In this time frame, in addition to recording and touring with the Screaming Trees, Mark began collaborating with some amazing artists and even recorded tracks with Nirvana. After leaving the Screaming Trees in 91, Mark formed the band Truly with Robert Roth and former Soundgarden bassist Hiro Yamamoto. Mark also founded the band The Dark Fantastic, played with the Tripwires, and has collaborated with Mark Lanigan on many of Lanigan's solo projects over the years, including my favorite Lanigan album, Whiskey for the Holy Ghost. Mark has also had the honor of working with Brandy Carlisle and Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, among many other music icons. Mark eventually started the band Mark Pickerel and His Praying Hands, recording the albums Snake in the Radio, Cody's Dream, Tess, and Rebel in the Rearview. Mark's most recent album is I Have Visions, under the new moniker Pickerel and the Peyote 3. I have visions, our future be written. They've been giving us hell, but no walls on this shelf. Nothing holding us back from the heavens. In this chat, we talk about Mark's creative process, the challenges and benefits of making music in a rural town in central Washington, how he's been able to cultivate so many relationships with iconic artists over the years, and how his artistic goals and ambitions have changed over time. This was my first face-to-face interview since the pandemic began, and Mark picked the location, his antique shop in downtown Ellensburg. So if you hear some chairs creaking or traffic driving by occasionally, you know why. I'm glad Mark chose this space for the interview because it added character and ambiance, which is not achievable on a Zoom call. It was also cool to be surrounded by so many interesting objects that Mark has collected over the years, as this backdrop helped me understand and connect with Mark in a way that I don't think would have been possible had I done this remotely. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Mark Pickerel. Mark Pickerel, welcome to DreamPath Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You can probably tell listeners by the sound of our interview that we are not in a bedroom. We're not on our Zoom laptops. We're in person. This is the very first in-person interview I've done since Sundance Film Festival 2020. So it's really nice to be face-to-face with you. Yes, you too. I know we met briefly at lunch last month or so in Yakima, but I've just been really looking forward to connecting with you in this way and talking about your career. So welcome. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about your most recent album release because today, I believe, is the launch day. Today is the official release date of I Have Visions. Yeah. I noticed the band name is 
Pickerel and the Peyote 3, and that's different mm -hmm. than the Praying Hands permutation that I've seen in prior albums. Right. You know, the Praying Hands originally consisted of uh, the Sangster brothers, Jim and Johnny Sangster on bass and guitar, and Mike Musburger on drums. And um, we've been through a lot of member changes since then, although a lot of those guys have ended up becoming pretty active um, within my band again. But after, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years of operating under that name, I, I sort of felt like I had made some changes in sort of not just musically, but some of my my musical ambitions had started to change. And I also wanted to shed the the Praying Hands um, moniker, partly because when I, when I first uh, started performing under the name Pickerel and His Praying Hands, I was sort of, I had sort of taken on this persona of like the Elmer Gantry kind of like, uh, or like the, the the character in Night of the Hunter, um, one of my favorite actors, whose name I can't believe is escaping me right now because he's he truly is one of my uh, Robert Mitchum. This sort of like snake oil salesman character, charlatan, operating throughout the country, selling you know potions and and religion. And I used to be sort of fascinated with a character like that that kind of character, but over the years I've become more and more repulsed by those people who actually still conduct that kind of right <laughs> business um and so i just sort of wanted to shed that moniker and that association and mm -hmm. you know uh -huh. get a little more real yeah yeah I, I see that yeah yeah it's it's a cool look and a vibe especially with that photograph and i'll post this on the show notes to the episode but the photograph that you told me about the backstory for where you're standing there I think you were officiating a wedding at the time. Yeah. And you're yeah. holding a book that's not a Bible, but it looks like a Bible. And it's just an iconic photograph. Thank you. It's a, I'm holding Duke Ellington's biography that does appear, it does look quite a bit like a, like a Bible and like that maybe I'm there to, to you know, perform a baptism or something like that. And it's funny because the, the photographer that did the picture that day, my friend Brian Olikaz, he, he was actually there to shoot the wedding, of course. And only snapped two pictures of me and it was just re really, you know, it, it happened in like less than a, a minute. And I, I believe that's probably why the, the photo turned out as good as it did is because there was no self-consciousness like yeah. I would normally bring to a photo shoot, you know, because yeah. oftentimes it's the subject that ruins the photo shoot just with all the self-conscious, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Do you find, and I, this is a weird analogy, but there's this concept of flow where mm -hmm. like Michael Jordan talked about it in the ESPN documentary, where when he shoots a three-pointer or shoots any shot, when he's in it, he's not thinking about it. And it just magic happens when that occurs. Absolutely. Yeah. I find that on stage. That's, that's true. Um, especially when I'm playing drums, if I can get into that mindset where I'm, I'm very present um, on one hand and very, I, I'm not applying too much thought I'm not, I'm not overthinking. Mm -hmm. um, like how many people bought tickets, how, right. many, how many empty yeah. seats are right. there, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Achieving that can be difficult. And I'm sure that's, it's what, I'm sure a lot of people leave the business because it, it's a difficult thing to achieve, finding that flow and being in the moment, you know, finding your Zen, you mm -hmm. know, on stage, you know, it's a tricky balance. I saw your performance at the Seasons in Yakima a few weeks ago, and you seem to have it there on stage. <laughs> I mean, you whether you were pretending to have it or you actually had it. I, I was mean. mostly pretending. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, it's funny because 
I forgot a, a lot of my own lyrics that night, um, many of which I nailed in rehearsal. I mean, we, we rehearsed all those songs for a couple of days, um, you know, about a week prior to our performance. And granted, it was our first rehearsals in over a year because of um, COVID. But I walked on stage not worrying at all about whether I would forget any lyrics or not. And actually, I was quite distracted that night because there was just enough light on all of all of you that I could make out so many familiar faces. And um, I, I did get distracted and forgot uh, several lyrics. And, you know, I mumbled something that rhymed, apparently. Um, <laughs> I didn't so notice. So, you didn't notice says a lot. So, I, I, I appreciate the, the compliment. Yeah. I interviewed a comic who performed there. Her name is Monica Nevy. And she performed with Brad Upton. I think it was a few days before you were, uh -huh. you were there. And she commented on it on stage she's like geesh i can actually <laughs> see i can see like your yeah. i can see who's yeah. here and it's really weird <laughs> i like to see the white of the eyes you know and and you know the white of the of a smiling face but i don't know that i like to you know i it is it could be kind of intimidating if you recognize half the people in your in your in the room mm -hmm. and i knew that that particular show was streaming live and so i knew that my wife and daughter were watching and other friends and fans and so uh, I, there was a little extra self-consciousness on on stage that night but i'm, I'm glad that that wasn't evident to you so thank you yeah so was that the same do you have the same makeup with the peyote three that you do with the praying hands or is it a different well lineup? it's funny because like i i said earlier one of the reasons i changed the name to the peyote three was because of so many member changes but it turns out that our next show, we're bringing Johnny Sangster back on guitar, who played on their first three Prang Hands record. Okay. And then was kind of replaced by Ian Moore and Jeff Fielder. And Jeff Fielder is the guitar player who came out to Yakima mm -hmm. that night. He plays with Amy Ray and Mark Lanigan and uh, Indigo Girls. Leg great, legendary. Great yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, anyway, so again, part of the rationale for changing the name was because Jeff had become kind of a prominent started to play a very prominent role in our sound and so we finally changed our name and now johnny sangster is filling in for him as he goes out with amy ray this summer johnny's gonna fill in and uh so mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway yeah i started i try know, one of the fun parts about this research project for me when i was getting ready for the interview was looking at the lineup of all of the bands that you were in and then googling them looking at their wikipedia and i'm like this like this group of people, your inner circle is 50 to 75% of the fabric of the grunge movement in the 80s and 90s. And, and to see that evolve and transition from, you know, the mid 80s when you're with Screaming Trees to go all the way into all of the different bands that you started after leaving. And was it 92 that you left the Screaming Trees? 91. 91. Yeah. And so... Now, were you on for Uncle Anesthesia? Yes. Yeah, okay. that was the last record I played on. Yeah. That album for me was kind of the soundtrack of the early 80s. That's or, really... Or, I mean, early 90s, I should say. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. I, I, I love hearing that. Well, I worked at a record store in the early 90s, and I just remember that was in constant rotation, and it, it really gave me... It was a portal, in uh -huh. a way, into the scene. Yeah. And, you know, the, there was... Of course, you know, Mudhoney, Nirvana, the Melvins, you know, kind of the standards that you think about when you think about the grunge scene. But Screaming Trees were special for me because of how close they were, you know, out of, out of Ellensburg. Proximity-wise. Yeah, just yeah. geographically, yeah. being in Yakima, and you realize 
this is possible. Yeah, good. That's and you know that's one of the reasons why you know we we actually um, were oftentimes referred to as a Seattle band, but over the years we've started to you know take a little bit of pride in in where we were from, or we felt that it was important for people to know where we were from because we feel like it played into our sound and sort of just the circumstances of of being out in the middle of nowhere and finding each other, these, you know, four misfits that all had nothing in common except for their passion for music and their uh, similar tastes, etc. We we felt like, you know, um, it made sense to reference Ellensburg as our hometown to help give people that extra context and, mm-hmm. and um, to set ourselves apart from just being another Seattle band, for mm-hmm. instance. So I've heard interviews with Mark Lanigan where he talks about Ellensburg and most of the people that interview Mark don't know where Ellensburg yeah. is. And and I, I think most people in general don't know where Ellensburg is because it's such a small town out in the middle of nowhere. But I wasn't able to get a sense with the interviews with Mark, whether he thought Ellensburg, like, like he became who he was because of Ellensburg or mm-hmm. in spite of, of Ellensburg. And I want to ask that question. Probably a little of both. And, you know, for many years, we were actually kind of resentful of Ellensburg's indifference towards us. The only time we could play a show here in Ellensburg is if we is if we rented a community center, which I might add is just a, a block away from here. If we rented a space, you know, we could put on our own show, but no one wanted to book us. No one invited us to play. We weren't welcome to play in any bars around here or any any place like that. So we did resent that, and that it took our appearance on MTV for people the Ellensburg community to start taking pride in in us, you know, was a little too little too late. On the other hand, there was there were people here who supported us and helped facilitate the the groundwork or the the uh, a place for us to to develop our own sound and to develop a kind of a career strategy. Steve Fisk had moved back here around the time that we started flirting with doing some home recordings and that kind of stuff. Steve Fisk who who later produced our first records and Nirvana's records and Mud Honey and and worked with Soundgarden and many other artists. Um, car seat headrest uh, recently. Anyway, there were people like Steve and some people in the, within the community that that did kind of offer us some mentoring and and so there were people here that did uh, encourage us and who really appreciated us. But on a whole, we were up against right. a lot of indifference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like in spite of yeah the barriers that were here. Absolutely. In fact, one of our first songs was called Stand Against Barriers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. And yeah. you started in your freshman year of high school with that band? Yeah. Originally, Van and Lee, the Connor brothers on guitar and bass, and I started a, a group called Him and Those Guys. And um, it was most of our set just consisted of covers of everyone from the Sex Pistols to the Rolling Stones and Cream and the Psychedelic Furs. It was basically just a cool cover band. Yeah. And then Lee started writing his own his own songs around the time I was a junior in high school. And that's when we started. And that's when we re- recruited Lanigan to sing. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. So why Lanigan? Like, what did you see in him that you thought he would be a good fit? Well, interestingly enough, so I'd already been, like I said, I'd been playing drums for the trees for a couple of years. And Van Connor, our bass player, and Mark shared, um, they sat next to each other in a journalism class and discovered each other's mutual um, fandom of like Motorhead and Black Flag and, you know, Sex Pistols, The Stranglers, 
So Mark had apparently just acquired a drum set through um, a drug deal gone bad. And some guy couldn't pay him for some drugs he was supposed to have purchased. <laughs> and so the guy gave him a drum kit. And so Mark mentioned this to Van that, hey, I'm, you know, I, I play drums, you know, we, we should start something. So we decided that I would sing and Mark would play drums. And we all got together and it became evident immediately that he didn't really know what he was doing behind the drums. And I, I could carry a tune, but I didn't, my, I hadn't really developed any personality as a vocalist at that point. So we switched roles and just to, you know, to see whether or not he could sing. And we, we knew I could play drums. And we launched into a version, a really fast version that we'd already been fooling around with. Um, before Mark joined, we, we were fooling around with this really fast version of The End by The Doors. Mm. Um, like a really fast, like urgent version of it. Yeah. And, um, Super slow song originally. Right, right. Yeah. This is the end, my only friend. Well, we picked up the tempo to the, this is the end, da-da-da, my only friend, the end. You know? Nice. And uh, so we just sort of coached Mark on like how we had reinvented this song. Sorry if I got a little, little loud there. <laughs> coming in hot, coming in hot. <laughs> anyway, it was clear to us that, you know, that Mark would, Mark would have to sing from then on and like that we had our own Jim Morrison and... Um, we immediately started making demos and, and played those demos for Steve Fisk and uh, he suggested that we book studio time immediately and you know we started started recording yeah during my junior year and mm -hmm. I think that first release Other Worlds came out at the beginning of my senior year so yeah but yeah we finished two records by the time I graduated that's incredible yeah yeah and, and what a an organic way for a band to come together where you you think it's going to be a certain way and this person's going to be playing drums, other person's going to be on vocals. And then you just find yeah. you're like, you know what? That's not, let's tweak it a little bit. Right. Cause originally Van, our bass player had originally been the singer, but yeah, just that, that particular day, the, you know, the, the planets lined up and that was the first day of the screaming trees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the evolution of that sound, which I think in, in my opinion, clairvoyance sounds like a first album i yeah. mean you know it's it's got the well the production value obviously is not going to be as great as uncle anesthesia but i mean there's just so much maturity that happens from the mid 80s through the early 90s and i love that evolution mm -hmm. what was the impetus behind your leaving the band in 91 after i mean this is an incredible album uncle yeah. anesthesia well th thank you and i was really proud of of what we were accomplishing artistically I couldn't have been prouder and I knew that we were actually on top of our game at the time and that I was that I was walking away just on the cusp of you know potential worldwide recognition but I was also kind of exhausted I was kind of the diplomat in the band or the, the most kind of diplomatic member of the group always trying to be the peacekeeper and that was a very difficult task with um especially the dynamic between Gary Lee the guitarist and Lanigan was just exhausting mm -hmm. um there was just there, there was a lot of rivalry between the two of them and um a lot of competitiveness and and um was gary lee using at the time too no not at all okay. no so and actually just... mark wasn't either you know mark a couple years earlier just actually right right after the screaming trees formed or about a year after we formed mark his leg got ran over by a big p-vine combine hmm. and um if that's what they're called that's a very ellensburg injury yeah, <laughs> yeah he was out working uh, the crops uh, on the other side of the Columbia River and ended up almost losing his leg hmm. uh, in this accident. And um, 
the doctors, while examining him and, and trying to mend him back to health, happened to stumble upon his liver and, um, you know, or, or they, they discovered that his, that his drinking had become a real danger mm-hmm. and advised that if he wanted to live, you know, to see 30, that he would, he would need to stop drinking. So he went, he stopped drinking. And for like the next five to seven years, he was, he, you know, went cold turkey and wasn't drinking, but he was a very dry drunk. He was very unhappy mm-hmm. recovering alcoholic. And so that was part of what created this dynamic that was really uh, intense. And me being the peacekeeper, uh, it just like kind of kept me awake at night, you know, trying yeah. to figure out how to negotiate a, a peaceful existence mm-hmm. uh, within the group was just became too much for me. And I started dating this girl who didn't like the idea of me um, being out on the road all the time. I, I got a great job at Sub Pop, um, doing retail sales at Sub Pop, and I uh, really liked my job there and um, kind of just decided to test my strengths in different areas of my life and, you know. Yeah. Well, it's a great time to be at Sub Pop. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, we, you know, Nirvana was on the label, Soundgarden, Tad, Mud Honey, Screaming Trees, you know, before we signed with uh, Sony. So, yeah, it was a very exciting time. I was at a, um, I went to a Nine Inch Nails concert and I think Marilyn Manson was opening and Tad was right in front of me mm-hmm. and he had this denim jacket on and it said, built like a brick shit house." And I'm like, <laughs> that is so spot on, Tad. Yeah. <laughs> you are built like a brick yeah. <laughs> So, Tell us about Nirvana, because you had the privilege of playing mm-hmm. on a couple of tracks that made it to the box set. Right. What happened there? How did that come about? Yeah. So, I believe Mark especially became pretty close with Kurt, and Kurt was a huge Screaming Trees fan. And at some point, they both stumbled upon their mutual admiration of uh, and fascination with Lead Belly, the uh, iconic folk blues. How do you, let, how do you lead better? Is it? Yeah. 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 And um, th- I think they decided that wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to just record a bunch of Lead Belly songs? And Mark knew I was a Lead Belly fan, and and so he asked me if I would want to you know participate in this little side project that we, for at least for a, a brief period of time, we were we were referring to as the, ju- the jury. Anyway, I saw Kurt and Chris from Nirvana and Lanigan and I from the Trees. Uh, we asked we approached Sub Pop and asked them if they would want to put out a you know, um, an EP, a five song EP or something like that, just to get started. And of course they jumped at the chance, two of their favorite sub pop artists collaborating. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we rehearsed a couple times and um, booked, booked a session with Jack and Dino, who we all worked with previously. And uh, yeah, just did our best to try and reinvent uh, or repurpose these Lead Belly songs. Mm-hmm. That one of which, um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? You know, six months or maybe a year or two later, Kurt re-recorded with Nirvana on the MTV, MTV Unplugged session. And so that, that brought a lot of attention to the original recording that actually ended up on Lanigan's first solo record because we scrapped, we scrapped the project for a while. We shelved it. But Mark asked Kurt and Chris if we could use his version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night on his first solo record since we weren't going to release anything under the name The Jury. Mm-hmm. And then like 10 years later... Universal or Geffen or Universal contacted me and told me that Chris and Dave Grohl had decided that they'd like to use the two remaining tracks from that session and include them in a Nirvana box set. So nice. I was thrilled. Ain't, yeah. it, ain't it a shame and speeds up? Is that? Uh, the, uh, it's called Ain't It a Shame and um, Grey Goose. Oh, Grey Goose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
what were and this is like post bleach but pre never mind yeah exactly what were you thinking at the time when you were working on the project were you you know going back to the beginning of our conversation i don't know if i was recording when we were talking about it but we were talking about being in the moment Mm -hmm. flow and i'd like to ask you what it was like to work with nirvana post bleach but pre never mind because my memory of bleach was okay it was a fucking fantastic Mm -hmm. album but it didn't put them on the map no but to a certain degree it did and i know that firsthand because i was the retail salesperson at sub pop so i was the one who was calling retailers all over the country five days a week and that was one of the one of our few titles that would you know we were getting reorders for it like consistently and and each time the order would double in size so you might get a store that might try out a couple of pieces one week and then they'd call back like the next week and they'd say hey we, we need five of those uh and then you know they'd call you or i'd call them and they'd hey man do, do you have any more of those nirvana records that you know we, we can't keep it in stock and so i i could see the momentum building across the country you know a good year or two before Nevermind came out um at least and so and i was i was a huge nirvana fan and secretly wanted to join nirvana but um was um I was just talking to a friend of mine who was Nirvana's guitar tech, Ernie Bailey, yesterday. And uh, I was telling him how, like, I was at a point in my life where I didn't really know how to assert myself or, you know, I never knew how to ask for what I wanted. Right. (laughs) You weren't a networker. Yeah. And I also never wanted to appear to be um, desperate or I I always sort of waited for people to come to me Mm -hmm. if they, if they, you know, thought I was the right person for the job or if it was a girl, I expected her to, you know, to... (laughs) You were going to pursue. So, you I, you yeah, were going to be pursued. I I, yeah. um, I regret that now. Of course, mm-hmm. I wish I had been more assertive and and uh, you know asked for the things that I wanted. But anyway, but speaking about flow and everything, that particular lineup was really easy to play with, and and playing with Kurt and Chris and Lanigan was pretty effortless. It didn't really really re- require a lot of effort on my part. Something about the way um, the chemistry of Kurt and Chris the, that they brought to the the mix. Um, and all that talent, I mean, it, you know, whether it's Lanigan or, or, um, Kurt singing, there's just so much command in what they do that everything else just sort of falls into place. And like the way Kurt plays guitar with a lot of confidence and a lot of purpose, mm-hmm. he's a very efficient guitar player. So he's like, he plays exactly what he needs to, to get a point across mm-hmm. or to get a melody across. And for a drummer, that's a real blessing you don't have to work nearly as hard when everyone else knows what they're doing and, you know. Mm-hmm. So, when you were in it recording with them, did you have a concept of how special that was, that opportunity? I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I won't lie about it. I, I, I was forecasting Nirvana's success, um, you know, years before they were a household name. And yeah, like I said before, I, 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 could, I could see this measurable interest in mm-hmm. them. You know, and an enthusiasm for what they were doing that you didn't you didn't always witness from a band early that early on. What were your thoughts about Kurt and also Mark too? Because Kurt and Mark to me seem like you know extremely talented people, but both flying too close to the sun. Absolutely, basically, yeah, yeah. And like I said, this was before Mark started using again, and actually, it was before Kurt. It was certainly 
when I was playing with him, it was certainly before I was aware of any um, drug use, at least on that level or to that degree. So I wasn't really concerned about it. One thing I can remember distinctly about that session, it was funny to me because Mark had always taken such an aggressive role in the Screaming Trees artistically and in, in every other way, every other aspect. But in that setting, he was kind of a wallflower and Kurt was also not very assertive throughout the session because I think there was so much mutual admiration for each other's talents that they both sort of continually offered each other, you know, the opportunity to, mm-hmm. to you know, to, to sing a song or right. to, 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 to bring their personality to it or whatever. So it was kind of funny. I've described it oftentimes as sort of like watching two wallflowers at, you know, on opposite ends of the dance floor, you know, kind of sizing each other up and figuring out who's going to make the, the first move and, you know. Um, Both members of the Mutual Admiration yeah, Society. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> So it was interesting for me to see Mark in a different role for the first time in my life and probably really the only time I've ever seen him kind of take a backseat to someone else's talents. But yeah, I was really sad when um, I saw both of them head down that path. And uh, it was actually one of the things that led me to start writing my own music was that as a drummer, it became more and more evident to me that I was always going to be in this submissive role artistically and professionally. And that if I ever wanted to really maintain any kind of um, stability with my career, I would have to start writing Mm -hmm. and singing. And so it really came not so much out of a desire to express myself, but really as out of a desire to enjoy some stability. Mm -hmm. Well, physically, I mean, the drummers are always in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think professionally too, I mean, you just don't hear a lot about drummers. I mean, you've got Don Henley and a few exceptions out there that really they're front men, but they're playing the drums. And you really successfully broke out of that mold. Was it truly where you you kind of started to feel a little more like autonomous or was it maybe the dark fantastic where you started? I think you were playing all the instruments on the dark yeah, fantastic, right? Right. Well, I played all of the instruments like at some point throughout that first record, but I didn't play all of the instruments all of the time. In other words, so I did play the drums and acoustic guitar and vocals on the first, actually the first few solo records. And I still do often, but I also brought in some incredible talent to to help me mm-hmm. um, on those records. But yeah, you know, again, as I recognized this need to break out on my own, that kind of coincided with me becoming more interested in expressing different musical tastes and ideas and concepts and stories and lyrics. And so after I made that initial attempt to become more autonomous and self-sufficient, the ideas just started flowing. You know, um, it became evident to me immediately that I could write and that I had ideas that were unique to me, unique to my story. And that was a, that was a big relief because originally it was a pretty intimidating place to step into, a, a spotlight to step into, especially after having played drums with Kurt Cobain and Mark Lanigan and I did some drumming with Nico Case. And, you know, so I had, I had some big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was pretty intimidated by that, but I became pretty comfortable with the role. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode 
featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So what were your, I mean, psychologically, what was happening with your, not, you don't have the confidence yet because you haven't done it. Mm -hmm. You write your own songs, kind of be the captain of your own ship. But what was happening psychologically that held you back? And what was the moment where you felt free and confident enough where, yes, I can do this? Mm -hmm. The reason I asked that question, I just had a voice lesson this morning. Mm -hmm. I take voice lessons from this guy named Claude in New York via Zoom. And he said that I participate in what's called productive avoidance. Mm, so productive avoidance, according to him, is like I'm doing things that are cool, like I'm doing the podcast, you know, I have a, a good job, uh, but, but, and I'm doing important things, surrounding myself with creatives, but I'm not actually singing mm -hmm. like I want to sing. I'm not mm -hmm. actually, I've got this whole wall of guitars behind me when I'm doing Zoom meetings. I'm not playing as much as I need to play. Mm -hmm. And I use, according to him, the podcast and other things in my life to be productive and to avoid what's really uh, what freaks me out and terrifies me. Well, I didn't even know about that term, but I'm still guilty of it to this day to a certain degree. And had I recognized that term many years ago, it, it might have been helpful to me to so that I could really address it. And, you know, your listeners can't see the room that we're sitting in right now, but they'll see some photographs. I also um, sell vintage vinyl and vintage clothing and everything. And, and it's really fun for me. And I found that it's really easy for me to get lost in this cathartic process of handling all of this stuff and pricing it. And I can see the immediate results of, you know, how quickly I can flip this stuff and how it, you know, it, it affords me a comfortable lifestyle to be profiting off of all this, you know, all this uh, secondhand stuff. Anyway, and oftentimes I'll justify um, all this time that I spend in that process because, like I said, it's it's evident that it's like the, the um, easiest way for me to earn an income. On the other hand, it's also a good excuse not to address the things that are the most important to me. And um, I think a lot of us suffer from that. Mm -hmm. I do know a few people who are apparently don't and who, you know, release two records a year or write a novel, finish a novel every two or three years. And mm -hmm. I'm really envious of those people. Um, and it could be that maybe I experienced a period where there wasn't a lot of evidence that there was a big enough market for what I was doing that it, that I could really justify the amount of time I was spending writing music and practicing the drums and and uh, and so on. But throughout you know the last thirty years, there has been maybe just enough evidence that there is an audience for what I do, and more importantly, that I really enjoy the process. And if anything, I really concluded that it's the joy of the creative process itself that is paramount mm. in my life and that really um, gives me the most pleasure is just being lost in the creative process. And so regardless of whether or not um, my new release is going to sell, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 records or not is really obsolete or, or irrelevant in the context of or, or considering how much I, joy I just get from the actual process. Right. And if not joy, at least I get lost in the process and I get mm. to, you know, escape my other problems and my, right. you know, so... Yeah, that's something I think a lot of us face. Yeah, it's definitely meditative to be in a creative process, whether you're writing or whether you're playing. The scary thing is, for me at least, is, you know, what next? Like, yeah. you show it to somebody and then you have to face, <laughs> you know, the judgment. Yeah, uh, which, absolutely. Which um, is uh, an impediment for me, I know. It's still, uh, you know, I still 
you know, when I have to lean into that discomfort, yeah, it's, um, it can be, you know, for some people, it, it's an, enough to, to, to shut you down. Yeah. You know, it can, you can find that it's just too much to face, like that it's just too intimidating and, and, uh, too, you know, too vulnerable and, mm-hmm. um, vulnerable is a good yeah, word. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's how I feel with any, anything creative that you put out there, there's a vulnerability there, but that's what makes it so special. You know, I, I heard, um, uh, well, I, I interviewed Moby recently and he collaborated with Mark and yeah. Chris Christofferson on mm-hmm. the track and, and those two sang together and, and they're just, they're both those guys are like, their voices are, have, have been through some shit, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but there's a vulnerability to that where they're just like, fuck it. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like me or not like mm-hmm. me, but I'm going to sing this thing. Yeah. And, and that's what I appreciate about them. And that's also what I appreciate about you and your approach to music because you're not, you know, I, I don't think you're a classically trained singer, but you, you really, I mean, at least that, that's not my impression is that you're. Well, think again. You know, <laughs> like you didn't go, <laughs> I, I, the research I did showed that you did not go to Berkeley no, uh, College no. of, of Music. You would or be correct. Whatever. Yeah. But you're, you're so, these are overly used words. It sounds cliche to say, but you're so genuine and authentic and unique to this town. And I think mm-hmm. the town and your upbringing and your connection to this area has influenced your sound. At least that's my impression. And correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, thank you. But your voice is so yours. There's nobody else. Like you're not trying to imitate anybody. And you've been compared to like Chris Isaac and you know, Johnny Cash. And I, I hear that mm-hmm. a little bit, but it's just you. Well, There's thank you. Nobody else like you. That means a lot. And it's funny too, because oftentimes, like, you know, you mentioned the show that we just did at the um, Seasons. And um, there are, you know, there was a period that I was kind of living, doing some hard living, you know, about a decade ago. And a lot of the music that we recorded back then really reflects that in my voice. You can hear you know, the smoky room in my voice. You can hear the late nights. You can hear all that. And uh, now that um, those days are pretty far behind me in the in the rear view, um, my voice is a, a lot smoother. And so, when I, when, when I perform that material from that period, it can really be intimidating because I don't know what's actually going to happen when I go for a certain note mm-hmm. or um, try to replicate that particular sound that my voice uh, featured at the time or whatever. And I... I at the same time, I also have to recognize that if I question it in the moment while I'm singing, it's going to be horrible. And so, even though I'm about to lean into a performance or a particular note of a song that that I know I'm, I'm not going to sing the same way I did 10 or 15 years ago, I still have to be confident that what's going to come out of my mouth and out of my lungs and soul is still going to represent or still feel authentic and it's still it's still going to convey something very similar to what I originally intended but it's and really you know a lot of people use the term channeling like and to a certain degree I feel like I'm I'm channeling other entities when I sing and oftentimes when I start writing a song I immediately put my usually a lot of my songs are character studies and usually I'm channeling some composite of some you know uh, li- living 
personality type. I can't think of the, the, the right word for it. I'll, it'll come to me in a second. But anyway. Like um, an archetype? An archetype. That's exactly okay. what I was trying to. So it's interesting to hear you say that what I'm doing is unique because oftentimes I feel like I'm really just robbing someone else of their identity when I sing mm -hmm. or that I'm like channeling someone else's identity. Right. So to hear that to you, it sounds like a unique expression is a huge compliment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's the truth. I listen to a lot of music and did a deep dive on your catalog to prepare for the interview. And I, I'm just like, I can't find any real, real references here. I mean, there's a little bit of Dwight Yoakam, you know, sometimes there's some twang in there. There's, there's a little bit of Chris Isaac. There's, there's a little Johnny Cash, but primarily this is like, you know, th this is road music for me. Like I can hear it. You said during your show, you write songs when you're driving, especially uh -huh. that trip from Yakima yeah. Allensburg on the Canyon Road. And I get that sense is that a lot of this music is inspired by or driven by, you know, road experiences. Mm -hmm. And the stories that you tell, I don't know if She's Got Wheels is an example of this, but yeah, yeah. where you're taking archetypes and you're creating these narratives that are just fun. She's got heart. She's got soul. There's some serious material in there, but there's also a lot of whimsy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be playful. Yeah, and and still come across, you know, with some seriousness or you know, mm -hmm. um, meaning, depth. I guess is the word I'm looking for. So tell us about your songwriting process. It really do, it it can start with something as simple as just a chord progression that I like, and usually I get up in the morning a couple hours before anyone else does and put on a pot of coffee and just start strumming and. I work on different chord progressions and oftentimes a melody immediately accompanies a chord progression. And then it's just kind of sometimes lyrics are part of that immediately. And other times I have to, you know, the melody is there, but I, I have to kind of play around with some lyrical ideas. And then, you know, I might, I might just hear a phrase in my head that, that um, appeals to me and I'll decide to start writing around that particular phrase. Or it might come in the form of a chorus, like here's some lyrics that really make a strong chorus. So now I need to write a verse that supports that. And then maybe it occurs to me that the song is going to need a bridge. And um, oftentimes I'll resort to this um, formula where I, where the bridge is where I might bring in a subplot that maybe contradicts some of the, the content of the, um, or it offers a counter narrative mm -hmm. to the, the verse and the chorus. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a little something to bring some tension into the, the story. Yeah. Well, you're or thinking about twist. it sounds like you're thinking about this very structurally. There's like you're talking about the bridge and the counter, mm -hmm. you know, the counterpoint or counter narrative there. It reminds me of my interview with Sue Ennis, where there's just a very there, there's a lot of fundamental knowledge that she has about how a song is put together, mm -hmm. as opposed to like when I when I write songs, I have no idea what that structure is, like mm -hmm. what the constraints are. Mm -hmm. But you have this, you know. You have theory. At least there's you. some tools in the toolbox. Like, and I don't always need them. Sometimes I'll just write a song that really comes from, it's just an absolute stream of consciousness. Like I have a song called, um, I study horses mm -hmm. and I wrote it like in less than a couple of days. I study horses, beauty matched only by their strength. I try and capture a little of that as I move on with 
didn't have to toil over the the content. I didn't have to apply any rules or tools to the process. It just came. And that song, She's Got Wheels, same exact thing. That storyline just kind of came from out of nowhere. Maybe a couple times I decided to bring in a plot twist, but it kind of happened spontaneously. Other times I need to sort of apply some structure or or at least ask myself what you know what what's missing from from this song and what you know what what can I use that's worked before to bring this song full circle and you actually brought up Dwight Yoakam earlier and it's funny I met Dwight Yoakam really early on in my journey as a songwriter and I actually met him in uh in Johnny Depp's office at the Viper Room one night and I had literally just started writing songs maybe 6 months to a year earlier and one of the first songs I wrote that I was really excited about, it turned out a few months after developing it, I realized that I had written this song around the melody to a thousand miles from nowhere. And um, I was so disappointed when I realized like that the, the, the best song that I'd ever written was actually just the Dwight Yoakam song with right. different lyrics. And I, I, I mentioned that to him and he thought that was pretty funny and was like, well, I hope you have a lot more success with it than I did. And, you know, and then anyway, we got to talking and I think I admitted to him that I was really having a hard time with with writing songs. And I, th- I think one, one of my early obstacles or challenges was that I, I sort of was living and creating under this misconception that songs all sort of had to come from the same, like one song had to represent one feeling or convey one really strong message. And that that message wasn't authentic unless it all kind of came from one sitting or session or anyway but he he offered this this um this advice or this other approach which was that you know he reminded me that you know life is just a composite of all these different feelings and emotions and experiences and you know there's nothing better for a song than for a song to expose another side to your story or i don't think he used the term counter narrative but he, he was talking about that very thing we were just talking about earlier and that introducing a verse that maybe contradicts everything that you said in the first two verses really shows how human you are because mm-hmm. that's how we live a lot of our lives. Yeah. We, um, you know, whether it's something in our love life or our professional life, something with our boss at work or whatever, we're constantly rethinking how our relationships work, how we want to exist within our relationships. There's a lot of that virgin horror stuff that exists in songs that, you know, like I used to think that if you were going to l- write a love song about somebody, the whole song had to be a love song. Right. Well, it's that's because for for many years, pop popular music existed on this premise that you know you were either going to write a, a breakup song, a love song, a, a song that exposed how horrible someone else was, or how pure and perfect they were. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I was still sort of writing from that perspective early on, right? But I found that it was very limiting and oftentimes didn't reveal anything very authentic or interesting. Um, and so it wasn't until I applied his approach that I started noticing that, man, you can really take a song really far if you're willing to, also if you're willing to move from like first person to third person without any warning or um, explanation to a listener. That would have been something I wouldn't have even considered early on as a, as a writer, but now I do it all the time. I just expect, I expect my listeners to to know when I've switched from first person to third person or a call and response. And, you know, 
it's asking a lot of a listener, but I think it also makes a song way more interesting to a listener to yeah. to be confused sometimes or right. to, to ask to, to say to themselves like, well, that's really weird. He he totally just flipped the story on its on its head, like mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, well, we're we're complicated creatures, right. human beings, and our stories are complicated. Our values change, and we are walking contradictions. So why shouldn't songs reflect that? Exactly, and that yeah. was Dwight's point. Exactly. And, and, uh, it's, it really, it was actually, it was a, probably a, only a minute long conversation, maybe five minutes, but it, it really brought a lot to the, to the table mm -hmm. and still does. He sounds like a humble guy to it, take that story and, and kind of chuckle at it, you know? Yeah. And not, yeah. Cause artists certainly self-deprecating. I don't know about humble. Yeah. Well, but certainly <laughs> self-deprecating. Well, I mean, artists feed off of each other. Yeah. And that's just a fact. Yeah. I mean, I heard an interview with uh, Jackson Brown the other day. I heard that too. Uh, with was it Mark Marin, mm -hmm. where he was talking? I'm mean, talk about a prolific songwriter, but he was just like, "Yeah, you know, the Eagles really took that Take It Easy song. They they did things with it that uh, I I couldn't do. Yeah, you know, they made yeah. it their own, and it's much better now that they took my song and." Um, and I think you probably could have taken Dwight Yoakam's song and, and made it your own too, <laughs> if you weren't so self-conscious about Actually, it. Actually, A Thousand Miles From Nowhere is kind of about as good as it gets, just as it is. Yeah. It's a, such a great song. So, the, there was a pop band, I, I call it pop, but it's for sure indie pop. Mm -hmm. Gosh, what is the name of the band that I was just research? Oh, Tripwires. Yeah. And I had not listened to the Tripwires until... I started preparing for this interview mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is great music. Yeah. Uh, John Ramberg can write a song, man. Yeah. I mean, it, these it, are radio hits. Yeah, I agree. Why we didn't have a hit, you know, well, it's actually not very mysterious to me because I know how difficult it is to break into to commercial radio in this, in this world, in this day and age with, uh, especially with like clear channel and conglomerates like that owning most of the airwaves, a band like ours didn't really have a lot of opportunities to to break into commercial radio but yeah that band the tripwires that i played drums for with actually with two of the praying hands jim and johnny sangster that was one of my favorite um one of my favorite bands to perform with and to, to be part of really fun accessible music yeah you know? and it really has its roots in like like british pub rock like nick lowe and rock pile and dave edmonds and you know chuck berry and um you know maybe the, like the jam and we were really influenced by a lot of British bands who were obviously influenced by Americana, you know, like mm -hmm. um, Garage Rock. And yeah, that was a, uh, it's a great band. They're still, they're still performing. And um, Danny Peters from Mud Honey plays drums for them now. And, and Johnny and Jim are still part of the band. And so, yeah, that's still part of the, the Praying Hands family tree. I'd like to ask you about all of your collaborations because to do a Google search of Mark Pickerel <laughs> and to go on YouTube and see everything that you've done, all the folks that you performed with. We talked about Nirvana, but there was a YouTube video where you sang Even the Losers, and we talked about this off mic before we started, where you're singing Tom Petty's Even the Losers song, and Duff McKagan's on stage with you, Jeff Fielder's there playing mm -hmm. guitar. I'm just like, how does this come about? Is it that you have all of these relationships that you formed when you were just a kid? Uh -huh. So you have this inner circle of people and that that is enduring. It's just going to endure for mm -hmm. decades. And that's the way I am with my high school friends. Yeah. I mean, the people that were in my inner circle in high school are still there. 
But tell us about how those relationships developed yeah. and endured all of these years to the point where you're on stage performing with fantastic musicians doing these fun projects. Well, you know, it's funny and it's interesting. Like Duff from Guns N' Roses, I don't think he and I ever met until around the same time that we started performing together about maybe eight or 10 years ago. Obviously, I knew who he was and we had a lot of friends in common. He was from Seattle and played in a lot of bands with friends of mine, uh, Kim Warnick and Kurt Block and people like that from the Fastbacks and so on. And, I, you know, I recently become friends with this guy, Ernie Bailey, who was like Nirvana's guitar tech. And I, I went and hung out with him yesterday and bought a bunch of stuff of his that I'm going to resell, a lot of cool vintage clothes and music memorabilia and stuff like that. But he and I just met for the first time about two years ago, but I've been familiar with his name for 30 years. But you get around certain people who you have a shared history with, and it's like you've been best friends all your life. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel around Duff. Like He's in Guns N' Roses, one of the biggest selling bands of all time. But when I met him and we um, started collaborating on on something, all due to the um, facility, like this lady, Deb Deborah Heesh from STG Presents, facilitated these concerts where she gets all these people together to perform to raise money for different causes. And that one in particular, I think, was to raise money for Haiti after the, the big storm there. Uh, anyway, but when, when he and I got around each other and we started working on these songs that we were, we were going to perform for these these shows, there was no self-consciousness or like awkward getting to know each other, period or whatever. And I think that's just really like when you're around people who have a, a shared history and also just maybe even just came up in the same generation and we're fans of the same bands and, you know, friends in common or whatever. And it's not just a, whether you know the same people, but you kind of lived through similar circumstances. Right. And that's why you're both on that stage together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I, if, if I got on stage tomorrow with, with Tom Petty or with like Tom Waits, I would be nervous. There's mm -hmm. no question about it. I would be intimidated. Mm -hmm. um, I probably would be able to fake my way through that and probably get to a point where I was relaxed and could do my job. <laughs> but... But when I get around um, people who I grew up around, Duff McKagan or Kurt Cobain or people like that, I do feel like I'm just hanging out with my peers. And so really all there really is to discuss or to enjoy is getting into the creative process with them and, and, uh, and being productive and having fun. And usually there's a lot of laughing and, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't really know how to explain how it happens, except that it's a pretty organic Yeah. Um, it seems like a brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a perfect way to put it. That there's this specific yeah. Northwest experience where if you came up in the 80s and the 90s and you played the same venues and you had the same, you know, you shared the same studio yeah. you know, musicians, right. it's like, yeah. it doesn't matter how well you know somebody, that shared history really goes a long way. It's like you've been vetted without, you know what I mean? Like right. just that you're there in that same room with them suggests that somehow you've You've left a good impression with enough of the same people right. that you would end up there. To, you, you, you've earned your place in that room. It's not a fluke that you just landed ass backwards on, on stage with someone from Guns N' Roses mm -hmm. or Soundgarden or whoever. You earned that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I feel that way. You know, um, I also feel lucky and fortunate at the same time, but I also feel like I've earned it. Yeah. And so when you collaborate with Mark, I, I know that you have a, a recent history of collaborating with him still. Mm -hmm. My impression of you as a musician and as just a human is that you don't leave like shattered remains everywhere you go. <laughs> like you, you're not burning bridges 
and you're leaving very amicably, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, truly or, mm -hmm. you know, the, the dark fantastic or, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many projects that you've been involved in, but I haven't read one gossipy article about you that there was any type of conflict that resulted uh -huh. in you leaving. I would say for the most part, that's true. Now, with that said, I have been kicked out of a couple of bands. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you wouldn't be the, the a true rock the star. The Tripwires is one of them, yeah. but I did leave on friendly terms. Right. And sometimes it's just personality things that, that I never really am even fully aware of. Like there, are, I apparently have some personality traits that aren't attractive to certain individuals, <laughs> or maybe it's just like the, the way I conduct myself within that band. Like maybe they'd be happy to sit and have lunch with me or drinks or whatever, but maybe my goals or ambitions within that environment are at odds with their own mm -hmm. or like I'm, and it might be an artistic choices I'm making as a drummer, or it might be goals and ambitions that I have that are at odds with their own, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I don't think it's because I'm an asshole. I don't think, you know, I don't think I get kicked out of a band because I'm a jerk. But again, yeah, sometimes it's just conflicting goals. Yeah. It's going um, in a different direction. Yeah. Or yeah, like uh, it might be like, I think that maybe I've been accused of taking things too seriously from time to time. As much joking as I do, I take I take the professional aspect of a career very seriously and and I'm very goal oriented and oftentimes I want to I want to apply a strategy to what we're doing and sometimes that's at odds with someone who wants things just to be organic and doesn't want to apply structure to what we're doing and and I'm very much wired that way that I I like structure and I want very defined goals as a band and yeah. so I was in a band called Uncle Squirrely in high school and I've been in enough bands to know that it, it is a very fragile structure. Yeah. You know, the, all of the personalities and the ambitions and the goals. And I think it would be extremely unusual if you were to go your entire career without getting kicked out of a band. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Many, this many acts that I, you've been in. You know, I try not to take it personally. Sometimes it's hard not to, but you know, I have to replace people in my lineup all the time. And I still love those people. And when we get together, we have a good time. And and, off, and sometimes people that I, I literally thought I would never work with again, I find myself calling to see if they want to work on a new record or if they can sit in for a night with the band or, or whatever. And, you know, the, the, the little petty things that you were once preoccupied with, like when you really look at the big picture of your, your story with them, like you realize like, oh, I was, you know, I, I made too much of this. You know, it's, it's time to, to get in the same room together or on stage together and make history, make you know, keep building on what we've already mm -hmm. achieved and, and what we've already managed to create. Like, let's let's put that behind us and, right. and see what we can accomplish let's and be, have a good time. And be adults. Yes. Yeah. So, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, there's just a, a few questions that may be kind of random, but how did the collaboration with Brandy Carlisle come about? That was really cool. The first opportunity I had with her was playing on her um, Sony debut her self-titled release, and a guy named John Goodmanson, who I'd known over the years. He was in a band called Danger Mouse, uh, who played here in Ellensburg and was part of the Olympia scene that, this, that the Screaming Trees were very much a part of. Olympia was kind of one of our homes away from home. Anyway, he, he'd worked with Sleater Kenny and some other great artists, and mm. he somehow land, landed the gig to, to produce her first record and called me and asked if, if I would play drums. He knew that I'd played with Nico, and he'd seen me in the trees, and that was just an opportunity that 
I think I was only given like a day's notice, maybe two days notice to come to Seattle. And I was actually just moving to Seattle that year. Anyway, it was around 2005. Anyway, I had no prior knowledge of her, hadn't heard any of her music before. And um, she just taught me the songs on the spot, just sang, like came and sat down with, with an acoustic guitar right next to the drums. You know, I thought maybe I'd hear a demo or something, mm -hmm. but it was just her and her guitar. And man... I knew immediately yeah. that I was dealing with a talent of a different caliber. Very special. Yeah. And to have Brandy Carlisle look you in the eye, and that's the funny thing about when she teaches you a song, she sings it to you, <laughs> not just in the same room with you, <laughs> but she she looks into your eyes for the entire duration of the song. And um, Mesmerizing. It, it was mesmerizing. Yeah. I mean, I got chills as I was listening to her and she's still, that's still the, the way she teaches people songs. I think it's also why it's so easy to learn her songs. Like, like you're really in the moment with, with the song when she sings it for you or to you. And anyway, that, that um, opportunity I thought was produced great results. I'm really proud of my playing on her first record. And then we kind of went separate ways for a good decade or more. And then about four years ago, she did the exact same thing where she like she called me on the eve of a recording session with this group, the Secret Sisters that she was producing up here in Seattle. And um I was like, Hey, are you available tomorrow? We we we're thinking like you're the only drummer for this for this this uh project and can you can you be at, at Bear Creek tomorrow at noon? You know, like and so I had no um prior knowledge of this group, the Secret Sisters. I think I'd seen their records. I'd, I'd never heard them, but it was the same kind of thing where Brandy and, and the girls and the Secret Sisters, Lydia and Laura, just like, they just go, okay, the first song is called um, Tennessee River Runs Low, and it goes like this. And like, you know, they just play, <laughs> get their acoustic guitars out and play the song. And then, you know, like within 15 or 20 minutes, maybe they'd run through it a couple times. Next thing I know, I'm, you know, trying to apply, you know, all, all of my influences or, you know, access, accessing all these influences of mine over the years and trying to bring whatever I, th I think I can to the table that, that will best support that song. Mm -hmm. And that was a really fun record to work on because not only did I, did I get to drum on it, but they were really open to my ideas that I, that I had ways in which we might make the chorus different than the verse or how we might make the, the bridge have a, a personality all of its own or, you know, mm -hmm. it was a really great opportunity for me, not just as a drummer, but as an artist to get across some uh, ideas and yeah. It must be really special and amazing to have a life and a contact list in your phone where any minute of any day, you could get a call from Duff, um, Mark Lanigan, Brandy Carlisle. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. Like just that element of surprise that yeah. anything can happen. Well, honestly, I wish my phone would ring more often. <laughs> Well, and it's getting yeah. harder and harder for those people to find the time to take my calls. You know, with Brandy, she's fielding calls from like Elton John and Joni Mitchell and, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, she's capturing really, her attention anymore is near nearly impossible. But I is, hope I will again yeah, one day. Her trajectory is is pretty impressive yeah. right now. And that book she wrote, my, my wife just read that book. She's pretty enamored with it. I have every intention to. I haven't yet, but I, I will. Because her life story is really interesting, and I'd love to hear her tell it. You know, I'd love. I mean, her just just from what I know about her life story mm -hmm. is it is interesting enough. So I'm really anxious to hear her her tell it in her own words, and you know, get into the, like all these different chapters. And mm -hmm. so you are married with kids. Mm -hmm. You're here in Ellensburg, and it, it looks like from the the look of your shop here, you're here to stay. Yeah, yeah. So 
tell me about Los Angeles versus Seattle versus Ellensburg in terms of opportunities and the pros and the cons mm -hmm. of those environments creatively. Yeah. Because you've been all over. I mean, you've traveled the world yeah. playing music, but you chose here to live. Yeah. And I find this place very inspiring as an artist and just the terrain, just the landscape of, of where we live fuels a lot of creativity and lyrics and music. But I will say it's a very difficult place to conduct a career from. And really the only reason I came back here from Seattle was that I just couldn't afford to live in Seattle anymore where there are a lot of opportunities, but I found that I was just getting priced out of any neighborhood that you, you, that you would want to live in. Mm -hmm. And so I looked back to Ellensburg and thought, well, Ellensburg's close enough to Seattle and close enough to all, those, all the connections I've made that I, I might be able to conduct a career from out here. And I certainly love the lifestyle out here. I love the quality of life out here. I love the scenery. I love the pace of uh, living out here. And it's a great, it is a great place to raise kids and to en enjoy being a father. And, and actually, at first, moving back here, you know, like I said, it did create a lot of challenges professionally, but I have kind of finally developed a flow to it all. And I am finally enjoying, I've also lowered my expectations professionally. Like I, I'm not just on a professional level, but also just my motivation for writing and performing music has become more and more about the creative process and just ex expressing myself and taking a lot of pride and joy in that and not being as preoccupied with the financial outcome mm -hmm. of it all. Yeah. Partly because my uh, vintage and antique business has become uh, successful enough that it's finally created enough of an income that I don't have to be a successful musician on paper anymore. And so that has been very liberating and, um, and actually, even on, a, on an artistic le level, it's been kind of liberating because I'm not as concerned anymore with whether or not a song has the goods to, you know, w whether a song is uh, right for radio, you know, mm -hmm. or, or whatever. So I know I kind of got off topic there maybe, but... Speaking of radio, uh -huh. what is your relationship with KEXP? Well, um, just that I'm lucky enough that, for starters, that their music director, Don Yates, really seems to like my music. And that has been a big benefit to me, obviously, because he's added every one of my solo records to regular rotation going back to like 2006 or whatever. And then also I have, I've just over the years, just because of running around in the same circle of friends, I've just become friends with a lot of those DJs. And also I was working at a record store, Easy Street. For many years, I was their vinyl buyer. And Troy Nelson, who has a, sh uh, a show on KXP, worked with me. And uh, Morgan, who has a show on KXP, her and I worked together at at Easy Street. Kevin Cole was uh, one of our regular buyers there. You know, he just came into shop all the time. And so I got to know him through there. And um, I just became, you know, it makes sense that I would, you know, be attracted to that gang because we're all into records and mm -hmm. we're all, you know, music enthusiasts. And so my relationship really is just a casual one, but it's just one based on friendships and mutual yeah. enthusiasm. And Yeah, they really feature you quite a bit. I mean, looking at just the YouTube hits for you and that radio station, they they have a lot of love for you. That's, uh, I hope uh, they continue to. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, um, I'm not exaggerating, exaggerating when I say that KXP probably really has kind of given me a career. I mean, with, without their support and airplay, I don't know that I would be able to sell out a room in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, I really credit them with a lot of that. Yeah. Now that rooms are starting to open up again, venues are starting to have mm -hmm. shows. What is your vision 
speaking of your album, I Have Visions, mm -hmm. but what is your vision for the next year for Mark Pickerel in terms of performances, recording, and music career? I do have a couple shows coming up at one of my favorite little um, watering holes, um, Slims, down in uh, Soto. I'm playing there um, with Stag on August 7th, and then I'm also headlining there on September 10th. Oh, nice. Yeah, with full, full band. But, you know, I kind of decided that I'm only pursuing things that come natural or like, the, like that are built out of like just an organic, kind of an organic um, place and that I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to get in where I don't fit in mm -hmm. anymore. And that, you know, that, that's actually a really, it feels really good to operate from that perspective for a change instead of trying to make things happen that maybe are outside of the, the realm of, um, I really want things to happen because they're supposed to. Right. Uh, rather than trying to fulfill some kind of fantasy of, of what right. it means to be a successful artist or, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's from a Zen standpoint, a philosophical standpoint, it's just much easier yeah. way to go about life where you, like you said, lowering your expectations and getting rid of the agenda. Yeah. So I'm still very you know. ambitious. Yeah. But yeah, I don't set my sights as high in terms of accomplishing specific things, mm -hmm. you know. I'm I'm still doing everything that I can within reason to promote my record and to bring as much attention to it as I can, but within reason. Right. I don't want it to be at a great expense to me financially or a great expense to me on a personal level in terms of like the challenges it might bring to my domestic, my to my family. Right. Like, you know, I'm not gonna try to land an opening spot on a Brandy Carlisle tour. If it means I'm going to be out on the road for three months. Right. You know, you have a 13 year old at yeah. home and um, yeah. Now I actually did pursue that, you know, 10 years ago and I got to go out and play a couple of shows, shows with Brandy, but like that, that would have been something I would have really coveted back, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Whereas now in theory, it sounds like it'd be really fun, but I also know that the reality of it would be that I would be away from, you know, away from my family and my business and yeah. a quality of life that I've really grown to to really appreciate and enjoy. So what does your daughter think of all this? Well, my, my five-year-old told some friends at the playground that I'm famous the other day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I, I don't know that they, how they were affected by that. It didn't seem to, to uh, change the, the dynamic. Well, your <laughs> five-year-old speaks the truth. Yeah, I mean, but she came back to me. She goes, Dad, I, I told them that you're really famous. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, my daughter Hazel, who just turned 13... I think she appreciates it to a certain degree and she even plays on the new record she plays keyboards on a song called rattlesnakes it rocks mm -hmm. and uh so you know i think they appreciate it i think they appreciate my talent and respect it um admire it and they don't think too highly of me of it right do too highly of me because of it they keep you in your place absolutely <laughs> kids are good <laughs> no at question that about it wives know? and kids are both yeah. good at that yeah yeah so one last question that's kind mm -hmm. of random. I, you know, you, you had this wonderful rapport with star Anna uh -huh. at the show. Tell me about that connection and, you know, what your vision is for cl future collaborations yeah. with her. Kind of whatever she's open to. I'd love to, you know, I, I, I finished that brand new duet that her and I performed at Seasons called uh, While Waiting Out West. And I hope that we'll record that together at some point in the near future. But you know, and I've I've expressed my enthusiasm to Star for playing on anything that she ever needs me to to work on with her, and 
would love to collaborate with her whenever she's uh, available to do that. But I've also told her like that, you know, more importantly, I just want her to to remain creative um, because I think that she could potentially be Ellensburg's biggest import or export, excuse me, if uh, if she decided that she wanted to um, have a career in music. Um, she's as, she's as, as talented as Adele or Brandy Carlisle or any of those people. She just has to, you know, mm-hmm. decide that she that she wants to right. pursue that. And, and maybe like me, she's discovering that she doesn't need that to, to enjoy her life or to feel validated or enriched or, right. or whatever. But um, I hope for her that she'll continue to write and produce and record because, you know, she's incredible. It's really special to see people like Star and you up on stage in a small town like Yakima or in Ellensburg and to realize that you are here. Like, this is not just a stepping stone. You're not just passing through trying to keep. We've your, tried. You know, we've tried. <laughs> uh, but you're. <laughs> we've tried to move on. You're committed, but, but you're, you're at peace with yes, being here, but absolutely. yet just immense talents at the same time. So I think that's comforting for people that feel maybe like they're in a inferior town like to see people that are okay talented folks not just okay but enthusiastic you know about being in ellensburg or being in yakima well i mean if you really think about it and you're probably experiencing it in in yakima as much as we are in ellensburg more and more people are fleeing the city to come to be in places like this right yeah there's, there's a lot to enjoy and there are real benefits to living in in places like Yakima and Ellensburg and Spokane or Wenatchee. Well, so. um, Mark, I'm going to put on the show notes uh, all of your social media stuff, but um, Great. so we don't have to go through that. But, you know, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best place? Like, the is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? I, is it email? I'm probably most active through Facebook and I have two accounts. One just, you know, under my name and the other one is like, Mark Pickerel Musician and Twitter. Uh, Bandcamp is kind of my favorite platform right now as far as like getting my music into people's homes Mm -hmm. because they provide the best royalty rate to artists of any other platform out there and artists get paid basically in real time, like within 24 hours of a purchase. Wow. So that's a pretty cool place and people can message me through my Bandcamp pages. My, My homepage on Bandcamp is actually Mark Pickerel and his praying hands because my previous record label Bloodshot owns my name uh, or they they kind of operate uh, they sell my er, my earlier releases through just Mark Pickerel but uh, to get to my new releases you have to go to the Mark Pickerel and his printing hands okay yeah and that's same thing for the POD3 and um, yeah I have it's all under the praying hands moniker okay. or umbrella yeah. yeah and is there going to be any vinyl available anytime soon I, I hope to release some some physical formats sometime in the next year. Okay. Is that really difficult to do these days? No. No? No. I have to just decide to to take time out of my schedule and my routine to um, actually it's going to mean my, my wife is going to have to take some time out of her routine because she's the project manager in this relationship and she can actually get that done. Okay. And uh, she's helped me with the designs of the last couple of releases and, and she actually like professionally is a project manager so she can actually help me see that whole process through i just have to make the commitment to to actually dive in and and do it okay well i will be your first customer for any vinyl that comes out for great i have visions or any other vinyl that you put out and mark pickerel thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you brian hey 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.